Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are the active voice of Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 and 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club. And we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If Women Aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are delighted to be talking with Teresa Powell, age 72. Terry's always been driven to do something significant with her life. And on the way, she developed as a polymath with experience and credentials in a wide range of areas, the arts, business, education, and healthcare. She acquired three graduate degrees, master's in public health, master's in business administration, a master's of science in teaching, and a BA in music. She's had a particular passion for grassroots organizing, especially advocating for women's rights and campaigning for political candidates. She has administered programs, developed nonprofit boards, and led professional associations. When Terry was 40 years old, she and her husband divorced and shared co-parenting of their four children. Prior to retirement in 2017, Terry was elected village clerk with the village of Oak Park, Illinois, a position she held for eight years. Recently, Terry has become active in numerous local groups, including the YMCA, Homelessness Coalition, and the Oak Park Action Team for End-of-Life Options. So welcome, Terry, to Women Over 70. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Terry, let's begin by having you tell us about this notion of doing something significant with your life, uh, in your life. What, when and how did this start for you? Um, I think it really was a specific incident as I was finishing high school. I always did well in school. I think I had a knack for for learning. Uh, I didn't really think of myself as struggling in any area except once when I had to take gymnastics. It was not my thing. Um, so uh, I was going to be a co-valedictorian at my high school. And just a week or so before uh, graduation, I was in the uh, office of the school and my English teacher told me that I had a letter from the President of the United States and I was going to be named a presidential scholar. But I wasn't to tell anyone till the awards ceremony that evening. <laughs> and my grandmother was visiting from Virginia for graduation. Um, this was all in Florida. I was bouncing off the walls that afternoon because I couldn't say anything and it was a secret. And I remember sitting in the audience as they read the, the uh, citation from the president thinking, this is it really going to be me? I can't believe this. 
got a dozen roses, got my picture in the front page of the paper, etc. And like so many of us who've been part of this program for the last 50 plus years, I had the imposter syndrome. Surely I wasn't the top female student in this whole state of Florida. Um, there were two chosen from each state. So there were about 121. There were a few extras thrown in. Uh, Americans abroad, Guam and Puerto Rico and so forth. But I found it amazing to be there. And the first five years were then studied by a, a woman who was uh, researching gifted education throughout our lives. And I got to be a friend of hers. She would send us uh, survey forms periodically. But there was a great burden in this because I thought, I guess I'm really smart. I should be doing something. And I wasn't sure what that something was. I was the first in my family to go to and finish college. So that was the whole significant thing. I felt the sense of guilt or maybe there was a mistake. And at some point down the road, they would say, oh, no, you weren't the right one. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, um, more of a, an anxiety provoking thing. Now, one of my classmates was Mitch Daniels, who became the governor of Indiana before taking over as head of Purdue. Uh, one guy three years after me was named Merrick Garland. So some of us did become very famous and did important things. But many of us just were ordinary people doing living our lives. <laughs> You know, Terry, we like to say that we talk with ordinary women who are doing extraordinary things. So I think you, um, if when we hear more about what you've been involved in, I think our listeners will be quite impressed with the range of, of activities that you've been involved in and the depth of your work. So um, you, you told me about uh, being a polymath. So, of course, I had to look it up. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically a polymath is somebody who has a, acquires a great deal of, has a lot of experience in different areas and credentials and puts them to good use. So, um, Terry, when I, when I look at your trajectory, it's, it seems like you, there's a, a rhythm that you find something interesting, you get involved, usually as a volunteer, you take on a leadership role always. And you make a difference, and then you move on. Is 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 this your rhythm? As you understand, that has it? been yes. In fact, um, in the last ten or twenty years, as I began to look back at my life, I thought I never stick with anything for more than a few years, and then something else comes along. And some of it has just been life interfering. Uh, this right after college, I got my graduate degree in education to put my husband through law school. And I then uh, went ahead and taught for three years. And it was a middle school. It was uh, on the south side of Chicago. It was a challenging time. And I realized that it was very stressful. And I thought I needed to do something else that maybe this wasn't the best thing I'd ever tried. Mm -hmm. So I found out about a position as a congressional aide with a congressman from Chicago, Abner Mikva, who some older people may know. And I went ahead and applied and 
I worked that summer in his congressional office in downtown Chicago. And I was then thinking, maybe I'll go into public administration. So I'd applied to a position in public administration. And uh, at the end of the summer, one of the staff was moving to the Washington office and they offered me a position. And I thought about it, you know, the road not taken. And I said, yes. So I um, went to work as a congressional aide working on Medicare, which was fairly new in those days, and um, social security issues, IRA, and, um, oh no, IRS, excuse me, and uh, the EPA. So any constituent issues that came up in those areas were referred to my to me to research and get back to the person this was a very well developed program which i think would be nice if more congressmen did this and so it was a wonderful experience but three months later i got pregnant <laughs> and went ahead and um, decided that i would end my work with them at least temporarily so after the baby was born, um, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to go back to work because I had no idea what I would do. And I didn't think I had the energy or the wherewithal. So um, that was the next change in my life. And for the next 11 years, I, I was a stay-at-home mom who was also involved in politics. I had been bitten by the bug doing the work that I had done. So... That's how some of these things happen. It just I just happened to see something or something mm -hmm. came along or something new happened in my life. During those 11 years at home, staying at home, you had more children, I believe, yes? Oh, yes, three more. And um, <laughs> I moved to Oak Park two weeks before my son was born and fell in with the La Leche League folks. And what I quickly discovered was that people were having their babies at home because there were a couple of doctors who were still willing to do that. So I got very interested in the home birth movement. And at the same time, I had joined Common Cause and they asked me to be involved with the ERA. So I started going to the ERA meetings and both of those paths continued. I had my next three, the, the last three children at home. I uh, got involved with several of the ERA organizations, went to Springfield occasionally, and once went to Washington, D.C. for um, ERA America, where we went to the White House and uh, visited the Oval Office. It was quite wonderful. And then I was, because of the positions I was holding, and, you know, having to be at the right place at the right time, I was asked to be an at-large delegate from the state of Illinois at the Democratic National Convention in 1980, Carter Mondale. And that was an amazing experience. Someone told me one time, and I was telling them all these stories, it's like you were like Forrest Gump. You always showed up at these important events. <laughs> <laughs> but after the ERA ended, you know, I... Um, I was going back to work and uh, began to work locally in Oak Park um, in a couple of positions with schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing admin, uh, I was the admissions director at a Catholic high school. And then I was offered a position with a Catholic uh, social justice organization that I was involved with. And uh, 
then after all of that happened, I got divorced and went back to school and went in another direction. But those are and some of it. I could go on. But right. So that the other direction, was that the, the public health or was that MBA? Um, when I went, I was looking at either law or MBA, and I decided the MBA was quicker. It was only a few years. But when I started at U of I, they had a joint program with public health. And I thought, well, two for one, I can squeeze all this in. So uh, I studied public health and specifically the area of uh, gerontology. But then I realized I didn't want to run a nursing home or something. And so um, when I was finishing school, I got a position at Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And that combination of MBA and public health was what got me the job. So sometimes things just sort of happened in such a way that they uh, boosted me off into a new direction. And then at Blue Cross, of the 13 years I worked there, the last eight were in business travel, of all things. <laughs> so, wow. Um, you know, <laughs> so opportunity. Say a little bit more about gerontology because I, uh, I know from the brief conversations we've had in um, another another group that you were kind of early in that field. Is that right? Yes. Um, there was, this was the time, I think, when they were first looking at long-term care. Hospice was brand new. I was down in Florida visiting family, and I actually visited one of the large hospice centers that were being set up in Florida while I was there. And um, I got really interested in advanced directives and end of life issues because I had a good friend who was 38 who died of cancer. And, you know, her final uh, months were caught up in, you know, a, a fair amount of intervention uh, by the medical establishment. And as I thought about this, I learned more about advanced directives when I was in school and I learned about um, power, you know, medical and uh, legal power of attorney. And I went ahead and got those documents back when it wasn't being done. And when I was offered the option of signing up for long-term care at my, um, in my job at Blue Cross, I said, well, of course. And it, initially it was something like $40 a month, which is very reasonable. So I have some long-term care coverage as a result of those earlier in life experiences. And I think ever since that time, um, I have not been afraid of talking or thinking about dying, but I, I'm finding now among friends of mine, uh, some people, have thought a lot about it. Some don't want to address it and just said, you know, I'm sure it'll all work out. And uh, so one of my passions today is to <clears throat> have some conversations and advise people to at least put your affairs in order a little bit so that your children don't have to deal with it. To some extent, I figured that out also when my parents passed away. My brother was the one who was the power of attorney. But I know chasing down the proper documents and making sure everything got reported and filed and so forth was complex. So I didn't want to uh, leave too big a mess. 
and of course many people our, our age are um, downsizing and the challenge of leaving a big house and getting into something more practical is really hard for everyone. Mm -hmm. I have been through it and I am glad it's behind me. I wish it were behind me. <laughs> yeah. So just I want to just take this a little bit further in terms of you talked about advanced directives and having your affairs in order. Uh, the group that you and I are involved in, Terry, we are also uh, um, sort of promoting, advocating end-of-life options. Is that also part of your your interest? Yes. Um, I remember from the days when I was in school that this was the height of the HIV epidemic. And the stories that were told about people who said early in the disease, I could never, I could never endure X that was coming along. And they knew, given that there were no treatments at that time, that they were going to, to go through this before they died, that they would prefer to die. Now, in some cases, they got gradually to that worse situation and hung in there for a while. But that made me so aware that it can be just awful. And certainly today, I know friends who have dealt with dementia issues or Parkinson's or other things, and uh, usually for a spouse, and, and what they had to go through and figure out what should be done, and people with cancer as well. I, I've actually learned more being part of this group about um, the details of medical aid in dying. And in fact, when I was visiting my friends in Michigan this week, uh, I was just out of town, we got into that area about um, talking about how I'm going to end my life if, uh... and I said, you know, in some states it's legal to do that. And they said, really? So they were thinking um my two friends were thinking i don't want to live in a way that's that's too painful or too restricted or that i cannot take care of myself at all anymore and so that is a lot on people's minds but it's a difficult thing to bring up and I'm amazed at how different people's responses are about whether they want to discuss it or not. Yes. Terry, tell us the name of the organization. What organization? The one that you and Catherine both belong to. Um, Compassion and Choices. And it is advocating, and I believe New, New Mexico is the latest state that has passed a law allowing for this in situations where someone... Um, who has, I think, a limited lifespan left and has talked with two doctors. There's different rules about the details, but um, if you are in your right mind and if you realize that you want to manage the end of your life uh, and possibly not have to go through a much more extended period of, of pain, for example, that you can make those arrangements and um, you have to be able to take whatever medication is involved. And many people get that done and then decide to wait. 
So it doesn't mean that each person who makes a decision in that way will just nod their head and say, I'm gone, but would would uh, have it as a reserve, you know, some kind of guarantee that if it gets to be too awful, I know that I have this way to wrap things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for, for that, Terry. Um, you, you know, you... You seem strike me as somebody who's very much involved in movements, um, the home birth movement, the ERA movement, uh, hospice movement, uh, end of life movement. Have I ne- have I neglected any major? Oh movements? gosh, there's probably other things. Oh, I lost my job. Automation. I automated the business um, travel program and they decided they didn't need anyone at my level at that level anymore and um, I got a wonderful outplacement program that I attended at that time and this was just before the um, 2008 but there were several people I knew who had lost jobs so I became the teacher I went to these um, classes about options for outplacement, you know, whether you want to start a business or what kind of new work you want to see, getting your resume ready. And I organized a group around my kitchen table of people like me who were looking for the next thing in their lives. And after that, my church group, there was one guy who would always send notices from the University of Illinois, and occasionally I'd get something else. So I created a an email group, and I sent out notices about these jobs. I don't know that any of them ever panned out for mm-hmm. members of the group, but I think people felt good about having some additional opportunities that could be mm-hmm. referred to them. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a time when I just decided... Um, Hey, I want to share this resource. <laughs> now, even in that case, job job search stuff. Yeah, that's so. What led you to become the village clerk with the village of Oak Park, Illinois? Yes, I'm curious. <gasps> and what oh, the heck does that involve? Well, that's a um, it's it's a marvelous thing. I had. <clears throat> I had known slightly the village clerk who served before me. Uh, she was there for 16 years, and our paths crossed, and we got to know each other a little bit. And um, after I left the job at Blue Cross, I, after much searching, changed careers and took a job as the admissions director at a Montessori school. <laughs> and yeah, of course. Okay. And, I got some training about how the Montessori program works um, as a sort of paraprofessional teaching assistant, but I could then present to all the parents who were coming in. And I got to meet all these wonderful parents of young children and uh, became a part of the school. I even helped with fire drills. I helped with the two-year-olds and we walked out with the little rope thing in our fire drills and so forth. But uh, after a year, I thought, I'm making much less than I used to. I think I'll try someplace else. So I went over to Dominican University and ended up with basically the same salary, doing promotions for the Performing Arts Center. Again, a change of career. Um, and after the year, I realized this was not my thing um, and left there. 
and was sitting at home thinking, now what? And I went, I happened to see an email that Village Players was doing a free performance and decided to go. And at intermission, I ran into Sandra, who I had just seen that she was planning to retire. And she said, well, what are you doing right now? And I said, oh, I'm sort of between things. She said, why don't you run for clerk? And I thought, oh. Now, I had helped with campaigns for village offices in the past, so it was not entirely new to me. And I thought, I've worked in campaigns. I'm not afraid to do that. I've, I've managed information and so forth. I, was, I don't think that I fully knew what was involved in being clerk myself at that point. But I said, sure. So I called up a dear old friend of mine who's been involved in one of the, what, what used to be one of the local political groups that would help put a slate of candidates together and uh, went through the interview process with that group and was one of five people I was selected to run with the slate. Mm -hmm. And there I was. So I did meet with Sandra, but I still think I had a, a far too fuzzy idea of it. At the point that I took office, there were 11 staff and they knew how everything ran. And um, I spent the next eight years every Monday night at board meetings. And I think that had it, it had cured me a little bit of attending lots and lots of regular meetings. So I am less inclined these days to say yes to a board position because I, I, have, I have worked it through my system. But it was an absolutely fascinating learning experience, both in terms of being the clerk and seeing how our local village runs. And I am now a resource. For example, I saw a Facebook post yesterday saying, my landlord won't give me my security deposit back. What do I do? I, I told him who to talk to at Village Hall and what the general number was to call over there. And I thought, you know, I know some of these things now so I can share them. So some of what I think has driven me has been I learned something and then I want to share it with other people mm -hmm. if it can be helpful. So, you know, Terry, I when we started this conversation, you, you talked about feeling back in the day uh, in imposter syndrome. Uh -huh. And then you said, well, I was just in the right place at the right time. And well, this <laughs> just happened. And but that's not the story I'm hearing. I'm I'm hearing <laughs> someone who is very proactive, who pivots so readily. Uh -huh. And as you just said, you see something that needs to be done. You want to get in there and make a difference. And you want to share what you know with other people. Am I on track? Yes. And and you know. Um, someone asked, I think a lot of us, as we get to our eighth decade, uh, begin to say, so what is my um, legacy, I guess? What am I leaving behind? And I can look back at some of those early ventures running organizations where I was, I was learning by doing, and I didn't always make the best choices to you know, I, I have done the thing where you're the leader and you do everything for everybody and nobody else wants to take the job. And I think there have been times when I was doing that in organizations that were purely volunteer. And if you take on too much and don't learn to delegate, 
that's another thing to learn. Delegate when you can, empower other people. And, um, you know, as time went by, where was I going with this? Uh, I look back and I say, in general, I left things a little better than when I started. In general, I was able sometimes to share that with others. And I thought, you know, maybe I just wasn't cut out to be a teacher. But I think the truth was I was very young. My daughter went on to teach in the Chicago Public Schools and was had a prior career and changed jobs. And I was saying, you know, it, it can be really tough when you first start. And she said, Mom, I'm 10 years older than you were. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this isn't my first job. Uh, so, uh, and in fact, she's loving her work and that's where she is today is uh, teaching elementary school. Mm. Um, so, um, Terry, now you're 72. And so what next for you? And one of the questions we like to ask our guests is, how do you think about if you do, how do you think about your own aging? Um, I think right now that I want to be an elder statesman in Oak Park and stay involved with progressive efforts. So. I was already doing a little of this before the pandemic struck, working with groups of young people who were the age of my children in some cases or younger and um, showing up at demonstrations and vigils and all that kind of thing. And being able when somebody said, how do we deal with local government? Could say, here, let me help you. I'll, I'll give you some information. So part of my thought about what I want to do in this whole legacy idea is to continue to be someone that people will um, invite to be involved. And I have said, I've learned how to say no when people say, do you want to join our board? Um, but I would take on a project. In fact, I just on Saturday, I got a call from our church about something and I said yes to being part of a committee. But it is time limited, I believe. So it's not going to take, you know, it's not going to go on for years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I am in terms of my life. And thinking about aging, I had two health scares in the middle of my service as clerk. I had sort of an emergency pacemaker put in and thought, oh, that's what's been wrong with me but continued to have other symptoms. And then about nine months later, eight months later, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. <clears throat> and that wasn't cancer, but involved chemotherapy that took a year. So um, it made me think deeply about taking on too much stress and, you know, watching what I ate and losing some weight and all of those things, I gradually tried to go in the right direction. So after I retired and got away from what was a very stressful situation at that point at Village Hall, um, I felt the stress drop off my shoulders. I started trying to eat more um, sensibly. And one of my goals was to have as little medication as possible. Given my age and given my conditions i'm taking two or three pills but mm. that's about it and it's really um 
my thought is I want to stay really healthy as long as I can. I do know that the trend had been, who knows after COVID, but the trend had been that more people were living longer and healthier lives up until that last illness. And so they've extended the period of time when they can really do things and enjoy life. And I have come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to play hopscotch again. And mm -hmm. I am probably never going to try scuba diving again or sailing a boat. I might take the helm or something, but you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out and sail a sailboat. These are some things I learned how to do, although didn't do them very much. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of things I can still do. And Focusing on what is still possible, I think, is the key to being in a happy frame of mind. Mm -hmm. and, well, that, mm -hmm. yeah, and I've thought, too, about what what is my final illness look like? Um, I've had uh, relatives, uh, grandparents, parents who had extended illness before they died and others who just had a heart attack and died. Mm -hmm. So my thought is that... Um, if I can stay as healthy as possible, I can extend that period of time when I can really be enjoying life. And uh, I want to be as knowledgeable as possible about my options as I get to a point where I may be reaching the end. And I've even thought, you know, there may be nothing beyond, but this is my last great transition, and if I can do it well. And the ideal is surrounded by family, at home, playing nice music, everybody saying goodbye, but being together, that would be great. Mm -hmm. And so having an image of that, I think, is helpful rather than you're going to be in some anonymous hospital room, um, isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. So that's my hope. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a very hopeful message to to end with. I we we really thank you so much, Terry, for being with us today and, and giving us a glimpse into your really rich and uh, varied life experiences. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, and listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com. <laughs>